Hi everyone, I'm Erin G and this is Alt Text. I know this season is well overdue, but regardless, welcome to season two. Firstly, I just want to announce that Alt Text has been selected to be part of the Canadian Indie Podcast Amplifier Program, which is a collaboration between Amazon and podcast platform Acast. So if you're not already, you can follow Alt Text on Amazon Music. I'm so glad to be back. And this week, I'm joined by my friend, Josh O'Kane. Josh is a reporter at the Globe and Mail, where he covers the business of arts and entertainment. Before that, Josh was a tech reporter at the Globe and Mail, which is how we became friends. In addition, Josh has authored two books, and he joins me to discuss his most recent one, Sideways, The City Google Couldn't Buy, which details the saga of the failed effort by Google's sister company, Sidewalk Labs, to build a smart city within the city of Toronto. The book details the challenges between government bureaucracy and the mentality of big tech companies, among many other public policy issues, including data privacy. So here's my conversation with Josh O'Kane. So Josh, thanks for taking the time to chat. I know we've been putting this off um, for several months. <laughs> Life gets in the way. I'm happy to do it now. And um, so we're here to talk about your book, Sideways, The City Google Couldn't Buy. And it talks about how Alphabet, Google's parent company, um, basically wanted to build a smart city in Toronto on a strip of land called Keyside which I think one of my favorite parts of your book was like actually saying to four Americans, how you to say Keyside, like yeah. Q-U-A-Y. Yeah. Um, great note. I love that. <laughs> I mean, even just like in Canada, I would be covering the story and I'd be like calling up politicians and other people and they'd be like, yeah, I've got some you know questions about this Quayside project. I'm like, do you, have you ever spoken out loud? It's, it's, confusing but it's not that confusing yeah I think it's one of those words where you just like read it and then it sounds so very different when you say it out loud yeah agreed um but yeah so if, give us a little bit of background as to like kind of how you fell into writing this book because I know that you were had been reporting on it but what led to you know this final final product yeah for sure so uh in late 2017 this really weird mysterious announcement happened where like out of nowhere you've got the prime minister uh you've got then premier Kathleen Wynne and then mayor John Tory all rolling up to welcome alphabet chairman Eric Schmidt and uh this former uh deputy mayor of New York named Dan Doctoroff who is the CEO of this company called Sidewalk Labs and they basically announced that they were going to build a neighborhood from the internet up in their words uh, where they wanted to you know try to come up with this seamless idea of a 21st century community with a whole lot of sustainability baked in, adaptive traffic lights, garbage moving robots, the potential for you know self-driving vehicles when the infrastructure was finally ready for that in a few decades. Um, this was sort of, you know, they wanted district-wide heating and cooling and a whole lot of like major technological and sustainable uh, sort of forward-thinking ideas, all based in this singular 
12 or maybe more than 12 acre neighborhood uh, right just next to the uh, downtown Toronto waterfront. And I became the technology reporter based in Toronto for the Globe uh, pretty soon after that. And one of the things I was asked to do was just try to figure out what was happening because this seemed like a very ambitious and strange project. Um, and I wound up covering it and for the entirety of its two and a half years, um, just trying to figure out what was happening, breaking stories, trying to get the public a sense of what was at stake in terms of the economic consequences and the democratic consequences. And then when the project was canceled in May 2020, um, because it no longer made economic sense, which was a confusing thing to discover. Uh, and I wound up spending a lot of the book trying to explain why it made no longer made sense for the company to do it. Um, it kind of became this really interesting endpoint to a story that I had kind of watched that I realized had an almost natural three-act structure. And at the time, I was in the middle of this investigation trying to figure out the company's origins and whether it had tried something like this beforehand, because there wasn't really much documented about that. And I was about to publish this investigation about how they had a number of you know attempts uh, prior to Toronto um, to consider things like building a city on the sea covered in a dome that would be avoiding all sort of countries' regulations. <laughs> and yeah, that really was the thing that they poured a lot of money into researching that it didn't happen, but it was part of the company's DNA. And I realized that, you know, well, I didn't get a chance to publish that investigation. So I was sitting with the sunk cost fallacy a little bit. And, uh, you know, a friend of mine, Sean Silkoff, had co-written the book on the fall of BlackBerry called Losing the Signal. And he immediately started uh, getting the gears turning, um, feeling that, you know, this is something that could be a great book and put me in touch with an agent who eventually got me in touch with my agent. And uh, I wound up spending the first couple of years of the pandemic writing this book about what happened. Uh, so it was sort of, you know, how did I wind up doing this? Well, I was a reporter stuck covering it and then it was a combination of pandemic boredom and the sunk cost fallacy and here i am uh and it's been out for a year now and i guess we all need ho we needed hobbies during the pandemic mine was learning how to make cocktails yours was writing a book <laughs> people probably enjoy cocktails more than they do reading a book for 10 hours so i think you're probably doing a better public service than me <laughs> i mean not maybe not to my body you know <laughs> um what i what I found really interesting was the the ambition of Sidewalks, Sidewalk Labs. You know, they had this yellow book of like mm -hmm. ideas and policy proposals and this big blue sky thinking that they kind of just wanted to like throw at Keyside and be like, yep, this is all the things we're going to do. Just like, don't read it. Just like, you know, check it, check off that box of approval. But I think that like, I mean, aside from the activist perspective that um, locals, you know, locals were, um, pushing back against the whole project. I think the book is a really good example of why, of bureaucracy and why we have those checks and balances. Mm -hmm. And I think that in some ways, you know, in a housing crisis, we are trying to build more houses or more quickly. And for a lot of people, that means approving things faster but I've always kind of pushed back on that thinking like we need to, we need to reduce red tape. We need to do all of these things where, whereas we have those processes for a reason. So we're not infringing on people's rights or we're not doing things that actually don't have an economic benefit. 
I don't know if you see it that way or if I'm just like wearing my bureaucrat hat right now. <laughs> I mean, like I saw this as a really great example of, you know, the tensions that come when the private sector meets the public sector, you know, particularly when you've got the, that sort of maverick Silicon Valley mindset that comes with a company like Alphabet, which owns Sidewalk Labs, you've got uh, a, a a mindset that's all about doing things as fast as possible in part because they always want to beat the competition but also because there's profit at the end of the line when you are able to successfully execute and cities are as i learned over the course of researching this book sort of the forefront of how democratic decisions are made because they are extremely slow and bureaucratic and that is by necessity because if you start leaving people out when you're making decisions in cities then why are people getting together in cities in the first place and that clash was sort of at the forefront of what happened and you know sort of why there was so much tension there what's really interesting is that uh, so the book has been adapted for the stage uh, at Crow's Theatre here in Toronto. It's it's just debuted last week. And the playwright who adapted it, like, you know, I signed away the rights to the story. He can adapt it fictionally as much as he wants to. And his perspective really focused on Toronto's nimbyism and that there's so much, there's almost too much bureaucracy that people are afraid of disrupting the status quo, which is very true of Toronto and explains a lot about why Toronto is so far behind in a lot of ways. And he saw it almost from the opposite perspective that I did, that Toronto has this fear of letting go and this fear of taking risk, that even though there obviously were a significant number of problems and a lot of overreach as described by, you know, people including the Ontario Auditor General, you know, this was a missed opportunity according to the playwright and a number of people who, you know, follow this project very closely and so it's interesting sort of hearing the different perspectives on like where the line should be drawn between the public and the private sector um and you know i didn't you know as a reporter i try not to make judgments on that sort of thing but i am really interested in delineating exactly what the status of that debate was on this massive project that never actually happened yeah i think I think, you know, NIMBYism is a real thing. And what I think is unique about the Keyside project is that there, it was just a parcel of land. It wasn't trying to overlay technology on existing infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And so I think because of that, that kind of allowed Sidewalk Labs to really try to get all of the things that they wanted and really think a lot bigger and a lot more impractically than maybe they should have and just started kind of started small and kind of and then laid the groundwork for future infrastructure but of course as your book details that first uh parcel of land was actually not big enough they actually wanted more despite the fact that their contract didn't say that so they wanted kind of wanted to just go like all in right away rather than kind of an incremental process which I think is how government works, government policies work in Canada. It's very incremental. It's not mm -hmm. kind of like a one size fits all. Here you go. Like the ACA, for example, yeah. or Obamacare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the way that Sidewalk approached it was, you know, they had to make a return on what they were doing. They didn't talk about that at first. 
They only started doing that towards the end when Waterfront Toronto, the government agency that they worked with, uh, basically said, again, that's the only thing we gave you a contract for. That took two years of, the, of fighting in the public eye to even arrive at that. And, you know, to an extent, Sidewalk Labs' early plans were kind of about, like, where can we build that we're not going to be disrupted by existing cities? Like one of their plans was, as I mentioned, to build a dome covered Atlantis in the middle of the sea. But then they were also considering things like, oh, well, why don't we build on the outskirts of Denver near the airport there? Um, you know, they did a pretty significant study about the Denver area uh, where, you know, they would not have necessarily been interrupting a city. But instead, you know, after a number of sort of incidents led them to kind of almost accidentally winding up in Toronto, they wound up in this sort of neighborhood where a government agency owned the land, but they wanted more land, but the rest of the land was owned by a mix of like other governments and private sector people. They didn't really get that. They misinterpreted um, the request for proposals that even brought them there. And it kind of just turned into this wacky comedy of errors back and forth for a number of years of, how are we supposed to advance society with these really interesting ideas that they had while also dealing with the very real limitations of a very real city where you were surrounded by people who were there? And one of the reasons why I thought that was just so interesting is I spent some time in Berlin doing research for the book where there was a much more contentious, though much smaller scale project where Google wanted to put a startup campus. They have these little buildings, startup campuses. They call them a campus, it's just a building or <laughs> just a few floors of a building, but it's just a place. It's like basically an incubator. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to put one in the heart of the sort of immigrant artist, hipster enclave at the sort of edge of Neukölln and Kreuzberg in Berlin. And I spent a lot of time talking with the people who were opposed to that because that was in the middle of a residential neighborhood. Whereas what happened in Toronto was sort of on the outskirts of the downtown. It's There were no real residential buildings that would have been affected by the 12 acres. People were more concerned on the broader city building basis. But what happened in Berlin was, even though it was a smaller building, they were concerned about Google's presence, basically um, what it could mean in the long run, not in terms of pricing people out because it was such, you know, it was already a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood and they wanted to slow that as much as possible. And I thought that was just an interesting comparison, which is why I deliberately spent a couple of chapters studying that project in the book because it's fundamentally different in terms of its outcome. Like the opponents occupied this building and then six weeks after that, um, Google walked away from it and offered the space to a couple of social development nonprofits Whereas what happened in Toronto was less about like the immediate people there and less about the opponents actually ending the project. The opponents all raised a lot of really important issues about the implications for economics and democracy, but um, fundamentally it was sidewalks sort of misreading, I think probably the best way my sources would describe it of the opportunity that they could have gotten thinking that they were gonna get way more than 12 acres um, to build this neighborhood in the future. Oh. Yeah. So you touched on, you know, the Berlin example with issues about gentrification, costs of living, 
And of course, there's also like surveillance capitalism involved with smart cities where we're kind of just forking over all of this data to this private company. And I think that Canada's fortunate to be governed by the Privacy Act, which actually makes it more difficult for um, companies and governments to collect information on us unless they have like a real purpose for it. And I think that is one thing that like protected us to a degree, us writ large um, from, you know, the, these invasions. Um, but I, I, I think that, you know, people like data is a currency. It is a thing that people want to buy. It has value. And, you know, I don't have any smart speakers or anything in my house because I'm like, listen, they have enough information on me. They don't need to know anything else. I'm totally fine. I don't need to ask it to turn on my lights. But I have other, I know I have friends that are like use their Google Home, for example, and their whole house is connected. And they're like, well, like, they've got this amount of data on me already. Why not? I just, why don't I just give them more? Like, it doesn't really matter to me at this point. And it, are, are smart cities kind of inevitable because of that perspective to like the degree that Alphabet was, or Sidewalk Labs was hoping? I'm going to take a step back and go even bigger than that, which is that no one even knows really what a smart city is. Um, I was just liaising with a reporter with PolitiFact about this, about because there are so many conspiracies going on now with the mm. idea of a smart city. And people tend to imprint either their greatest fears or their greatest hopes on the label of smart city. I would say statistically, probably more on the fears side. Um, you know, the idea of a smart city goes back to like, well, smartphones are interesting. What if we scaled that up all the way to cities and really thought about like, you know, imbuing more technology into the infrastructure that we're building. And naturally there's going to be data collection because companies such as Alphabet and to a, a little bit later on, Facebook slash Meta, you know, built the economy of the internet around collecting data, extracting value from it. And then, you know, the consumer slash citizen in this case gets more targeted advertising that they don't necessarily get much financial benefit. What was happening in Toronto with, 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 Sidewalk Labs is really interesting is Sidewalk Labs did recognize a lot of the fears that came up immediately about data collection and they kept trying to reiterate different policies about it and to a lot of extent um, and some of the opponents would argue very superficially um, Sidewalk tried to react to public concerns by saying like proposing for example that they were going to put all data in a trust that they would have no greater privilege than any other person or researcher or company would to be able to access the data in order to be able to learn patterns about whatever is going on in this neighborhood of the future. Um, but then, you know, very smartly, other people came and recognized, like, why is the private company that is a vendor to the government proposing public policy in the first place? And so it almost kind of went to this meta level above like meta, the definition of meta, meta, not the company. That's going to be confusing for generations <laughs> to come. But this sort of meta level above uh, the idea of data collection and really thinking about, you know, not necessarily privacy, but the privatization of government decisions. And it all comes back to like, where is the line between when 
the public sector should be making decisions versus the private sector doing things more efficiently. Um, and, you know, Sidewalk Labs was trying to propose really interesting things, but at the end of the day, the government does have experts on deck to be able to respond to that. They respond very slowly, but it is, you know, in this state of the democracy that we live in, that is generally how things are supposed to go. Yeah, I feel like there's probably a continuum of what a smart city could be defined as, right? Like mm -hmm. you've got this probably utopian vision that Elon Musk and all the Silicon Valley technocrats have. And then you've got, um, you know, a recent example that I was reading about was in Dallas. There's like a neighborhood that had, you know, they um, revamped it. And the, when they redeal the sidewalks, they put in um, technology to figure out where people were walking and like at what times of day and that sort of thing. And they're kind of starting small, although still with like surveilling, they're surveilling in the lights on this city in like on the street, in the street lights. And I'm like, I don't know that I like that, but don't it was forget like, the CCTV is everywhere. Like yeah. you can walk down the street and if police can with a series of warrants, basically map your entire journey in like most commercial and a lot of residential neighborhoods in most cities these days. Not to excuse that behavior. Yes, but, that but is it's already happening. Yeah, like since the 1970s, when CCTVs became really prominent, you know, London was the first major city to wire itself up as completely as possible on that. And we as a society are kind of like, people have always drawn, raised concerns about this, but we as a society kind of waited for like a more of a critical mass to emerge on that more recently. And I think it's because of, the extent to which that surveilling can happen becomes so much more wide scale and easier to collate because of the digital nature of it and the companies that are making these proposals. Yeah, I feel like you know, we see it a lot in like crime shows. It's always like, oh, is there camera footage of the crime mm -hmm. that happened outside mm -hmm. uh, or of the accident? And then, of course, you've got um ubers and ride sharing where like they have dash cams and like all of that sort of thing too so we are being surveilled all the time um but it's just kind of like i don't know it just feels weird when it's like part of like a government thing although i guess if the police are doing it now they're quote-unquote agents of government yeah and i mean to what extent should we be allowing the police to do it like we can't well, always there is no such thing as you know, assuming that the intent of every single agent of every single government body is going to necessarily work in the public interest. I mean, you know, we've, mm -hmm. have, you know, the last few years have been quite um, exemplary in terms of coming up with a lot of examples about that. Um, and I think here's the thing, you know, there's this whole idea of technological inevitabilism, like we need to constantly, not just when we invent something, it, it doesn't end in inventing it, it has to just saturate the marketplace. And Technological inevitabilism, you know, really, really rose over the last, you know, I would argue 25 years since before the dot-com bubble burst. Uh, let's try to bring in every single technology possible. But like, look at cars. Like I was reading a story, I believe, in the Times a couple of weeks ago, where, you know, car manufacturers are interested in actually stepping back from giant touchscreens and moving back to real like knobs and dials and switches because they're much easier for you to just like, without looking, you know exactly what you're looking for. Like yeah. people put, you know, giant touchscreens in cars because, the, well, why not? Like we have them on our phones. We might as well have these giant distracting bright screens driving at night. 
Um, and then, you know, that was technological inevitableism. But now manufacturers are taking a step back and they're not as serious about that. And to me, that's an interesting sort of recognition of maybe we don't need to adopt every single thing just because it exists. And that, I think, was a major part of the debate around what was happening with Sidewalk Labs here in Toronto. Do you think that Toronto will try the smart spacing again? Not anytime soon. Um, and I think we're actually seeing the smart cities movement kind of bifurcating at this point. Um, in one sense of the word, I think you're looking, you know, cities such as Barcelona have already been doing this where they like Barcelona literally asks people what they should be investing in in a digital manner. And, you know, sometimes they come up with ideas like let's measure water flows um, under our roads. Um, whereas in the opposite direction, you have more autocratic governments, um, such as in Saudi Arabia, where they're building this magical line community that's going to be like this mirrored long community filled with these little mini 15 minute cities. Within it, it'll be all walkable um, and it's going to be sustainable and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, they can only do this because they're you know, using a lot of uh, dangerous human labor in the middle of the desert, and they're just building it because the government has the power to just plow, like, create new rules to make it even possible. And so you're sort of, you're, the idea of a quote-unquote smart city is less flashy and shiny and top-down like a major consumer technology company doing it, and we're sort of seeing this sort of you know, if that were sort of somewhere in the middle, you're sort of seeing, you know, a more citizen focused way, but also a more autocratic way um, of approaching the idea of a smart city. And again, because there is no formal definition of smart city, people are imprinting upon it whatever they want. We're not necessarily seeing cities in North America embracing these sorts of things as much as we're sort of seeing them a lot in the Middle East and in Asia. Yeah, and, and is that because of the um, types of governments, let's say, and um, the fact that they're a lot more um, one accepting of technology and two, they're kind of developing nations in a lot of cases, and three, are still very or still generally more supportive of. Um, law enforcement than maybe say in Western or North America? I mean, that's a good question. I think it does come down to the nature of the countries and the relationships that governments have with their citizens. In North America and Europe, it, you know, there is a lot of existing infrastructure, whereas in a more developing country, there's an opportunity to think for in what could be argued as a forward thinking way of like, how can we future-proof our infrastructure and make it up to date so, you know, we are able to, you know, have sustainability in mind or have digital connectivity in mind. Um, so- Well, also maybe protecting against like uh, natural disasters. Yeah. And in fact, like I, I recently spent time in a forthcoming, for a forthcoming story for the globe um, in Rio de Janeiro, where uh, they have, one of the first major smart city partnerships uh, was, you know, 13 odd years ago um, between IBM and City Hall in Rio de Janeiro, where after a pretty devastating storm with a lot of uh, mudslides and a lot of lives lost, 
Um, they basically set up this emergency center that monitors weather, that monitors traffic so they can get the news out of like, avoid this neighborhood, avoid this road or highway, um, you know, it's dangerous, there's flooding. And they're really focused on uh, disaster response and crime response there. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that IBM actually pulled out of that partnership. Um, and now it's sort of more grassroots. It's dictated by City Hall. They do have a small number of other partnerships, including with Waze and with NASA. But uh, it's no longer this big top-down, like, let's partner with a big tech company because that's really uh, popular to do right now. And it's more like, how can we avoid disasters and think about embracing technology to do that? Mm -hmm. So last question on this. Um, Reed Hoffman, Mark Andreessen, and Chris Dixon, and Laureen Powell Jobs, they recently bought a massive or invest, invested bot however they want to call it. And a bunch of other technocrats bought a parcel of land just outside uh, Silicon Valley and San Francisco. Is this where they finally get their like smart city utopia? I don't know. Um, because what's interesting is that one of the reasons why things didn't work out in Toronto is because an obscure government agency owned the land and it was this delicate dance about who, what kinds of privileges sidewalk labs could get. This is in like farmland um, in California. Now, California does have a lot of progressive laws and there's a lot of progressive lawmakers who may be interested in, you know, making sure that there's a great deal of oversight there. But if they own a significant portion of this land, they can kind of do what they want with it. And I know there's at least one major sidewalk labs person affiliated with this project. Um, and I know that um, Sidewalk Labs in particular was obsessed with what uh, Walt Disney did in Florida, where he bought up all these little pieces of land and basically created a community that was mm -hmm. governed by a board of directors. And that board of directors represents the shareholders, which are the landowners, which are majority Disney. And so it would not surprise me if they moved to something like that and if they can have a you know, a village, town, community, maybe eventual city governed by a board of directors, then they will be able to sort of think about like, let's build infrastructure the way we want it. Let's build something shiny and new. They're obviously going to still be beholden to state and national laws there. And that is going to have, like, you know, if they choose to bring in a lot of data collection, you know, there will be beholden to all that. And I know California is one of the more progressive jurisdictions in the world around that but uh it remains to be seen exactly what their intent is on this but by sheer nature of not having an obscure government agency owning the land and them just owning the land outright already they could go a lot further than what happened in toronto right right so you're watching it for sure i am absolutely watching it. <laughs> that's your next book maybe <laughs> i'm tired of books for a minute just a minute <laughs> well um, my life. last question so you're now an arts reporter with the globe uh what and i know that you're a big music guy what uh what do you, what's hot for you lately what's on repeat i have been listening to two very different albums or one is the new king gizzard and the wizard lizard album which is like a thrash metal album uh and I've been listening to it on repeat while I've been running it at the gym. 
And then the new Romy album, Romy from the XX, uh, has put out a really great like club album, and it's just absolutely fantastic and super filled with hooks. And um, yeah, I've, those two albums have been on repeat constantly for the last few weeks. So you haven't listened to Olivia Rodrigo yet? <laughs> I have not. I promise you I will. I need to be in my early 2000s mindset. Uh, that's just like what I the vibe I'm always in. i shed my past all right i came of age back then i don't know if i want to relive it quite yet (laughs) you you don't want to feel awkward in your body again that's weird (laughs) oh josh thank you so much thanks aaron it's been great well that does it for this week huge thanks to josh for chatting with me and of course thank you to amazon and acast for selecting me to be part of the Canadian Indie Podcast Amplifier Program. It's very exciting for me. And of course, a huge thanks to everyone who listens every week. I'll be back next week. And in the meantime, you can find me on social media, on Twitter, Blue Sky, Threads, I guess Instagram. You know, I'm on all of them. So I'll catch you later.